Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impacts these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. Before we get started, if you are loving this podcast, please be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, and uh, share this episode. So today we're going to chat about the wonderfully complex world of setting up a cannabis cultivation facility. And our guest today has successfully built businesses in the clean tech, energy efficiency, and HVAC industries over the past 10 years. He currently serves as chairman of the board and CEO of CEA Industries and CEO of their subsidiary, Certain Cultivation Technologies. Please welcome Tony McDonald. Hello, thank you. Great to have you here. Um, and today, our in-house guest, we are thrilled to welcome back um, Chief Knowledge Officer of New Frontier Data, Mr. John Kagia. Thanks for yeah, being I'd here. I'd like to be back. <laughs> thank you, Heather. Um, so, Tony, you have a long career spanning across different industries, um, and Cerna Cultivation Technologies has a ton of experience in both commercial construction and controlled environment agriculture. What was your initial reaction to diving into the complexities of setting up a cannabis facility? Well, I'm an engineer by training, and uh, I had, you know, again been in the HVAC industry and had, you know, built a clean tech company there, and. When I saw what was what was going on with this particular company and the industry it serves, I mean, it, it, it's it's quite intriguing from an engineering perspective. Uh, you know, we if you look at a, an indoor cannabis or e- any indoor grow facility, uh, we jokingly refer to it as a, a data center with a swimming pool in the middle. As you think of a, a data center that has a very high uh, sensible heat load, sensible just or, you know, with the, the heat we feel, uh, it has very high heat load because you have all these servers in there giving off heat. Okay, you have to remove that heat with with some sort of environmental control technology. Then, you, in a in a CEA facility, now you add the complexity of high latent heat or humidity into that facility, and so now you have a great deal of energy that you have to remove. From that facility, so that's that's one challenge. And then the second is that not only do you need to remove it, but you have very tight tolerances that you have to hold for both temperature and humidity, which are combined in a, in a quality of the air called vapor pressure deficit that you're trying to hold for specific periods of time, and to then give the power to control that into the hands of the cultivator, whose job it is to you know, grow his product. And so the environmental conditions are one important aspect of what, of the, of the, to the, the, uh, to the combination of factors they're trying to bring together to bring forth their best product. So it's a very complex engineering challenge to not only meet these high density heat loads, but then to control it very precisely and to be able to change it when desired. I can only imagine. Well, it seems like you are up for the challenge. Um, so I have to ask, so you, um, you're you a West Point graduate and you got your MBA at Harvard Business School. Did you have any hesitation moving into the cannabis industry or did, did your colleagues have any reaction to you saying, I'm going to be moving into cannabis? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have long been supportive of, of legalized cannabis in the United States. Uh, so I no no reservations you know whatsoever. Uh, you know I think we're making you know great progress here on you know bringing forth a, a quality legalized legalized product and to get it you know out of the black market. Amazing. 
Well, John, any um, any burning questions for Tony? Yeah, Tony, I, I love the analogy of a data center with a swimming pool in the middle. And it got me think, got me wondering, you know, you've been in the control environment agriculture for, for a space for a long time. Is there any other crop that, that brings together this convergence of challenges that you see with cannabis? Uh, predominantly lucrative on one side, but also having very narrow tolerances for, for effective maturation, um, you know, very... Uh, intense kind of energy uh, uh, and heat in particular management requirements. You know, is, is there any other aspect of any other crop in, in agriculture or any other product that we're trying to produce where you see uh, this convergence of challenges on the operational side, but also which yield the kinds of returns that you see with cannabis on a per pound basis? Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. And, and I'm certainly not uh, really real familiar with the food side, but you know, you, <laughs> strawberries aren't getting, you know, 2000 bucks a pound uh, last right. time I checked. Uh, so, uh, I, no, I don't think there's anything, uh, you know, quite like it. And uh, nor, from what I understand, uh, do I think that any other product uh, or, or, you know, food requires a kind of precise uh, environmental control uh, yeah. that that we're that you're, you're doing in these kind of facilities. Uh, and part of that's driven by the fact that you, you, you really couldn't afford that. Uh, right, for right. you know greens or or the other type of products. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, one last uh, critical question before we move on. Um, according to your LinkedIn, you set the academy push-up record on the Army Physical Readiness Test. So, two questions: How many push-ups was that, and does the record still stand? Uh, sadly, it does not, but I'm happy to say that younger, uh, younger folks have stepped up and yeah, I did 122 in two minutes. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was my, my minor claim to fame. Um, all right. Well, thank you for that. Um, so moving on, um, WHEC.com reports, Rochester area businesses among those granted first conditional cannabis growing licenses. So setting up a new cannabis business can be extremely expensive. And as new cultivation facilities are being set up in the East Coast and Midwestern states to serve newly legal markets, it is vital that established and prospective operators are aware of the complexities that go into growing cannabis commercially. So Tony, what are some key considerations new cultivation facility operators should be aware of as they design and build their facilities? Yeah, I think the, uh, an important part is to take a long-term uh, view on the business. Uh, you know, what, what's, what we can see in the market is the pound price in new markets inevitably falls as more competitors come into the space. And so what you need to think of is the long term. How do I maximize the efficiency while minimizing operating costs so that I can survive the ebbs and flows of the market? Because you know the price is going to come down over time. Uh, you, yeah, you might get a, you know, a premium early on, but What's it going to look like when the price is considerably less? Will you still have a profitable facility? Um, now, a, a, a bit counter to that is that the speed to the market uh, is important, so you can take advantage of that higher cost per pound at the very at the very front of the uh, the legalization process. Uh, so, on the one hand, you want to you do want to get in there as quickly as possible, but you, that doesn't mean you have to be unwise with respect to the long term. Uh, viability of the facility, so you, you kind of need to, to you know to balance those. Uh, using a, a design build construction team that has CEA, the con, you know combined or uh, controlled environment ag experience, 
can easily take 16 to 18 months off the construction learning curve uh, compared to folks who are maybe less familiar with these facilities or haven't done them. Uh, and in addition, can usually be less expensive as well because they're you know, well-experienced in these facilities. Because uh, also long-term brand benefits uh, on the brand loyalty side by being first to market. So it's important to, to get in there fast, but to do it with a facility that is going to ha have the efficiency and cost structure you need for the long term, you know, working with, uh, you know, folks who are familiar with those facilities is really important. Uh, another thing, plan for expansion. Uh, you, hopefully your grow goes well, and then you'll be, you know, building out uh, in addition to it. We've That's uh, some of our favorite customers are folks who we've done an initial facility with, and then, uh, you know, do out more, build more. So then you got to think about things like land space. Uh, you know, is there going to be water availability? Is there going to be power availability? So thinking a little bit longer term. Uh, and then finally, I guess I couldn't agree more on the speed to market on the East Coast where states are limiting licenses. Uh, you know, it always amazes me. I see a group uh, win the golden ticket and then not be prepared to take advantage of the opportunity. So get your team in place. So when you win, you can move right into design and then construction, you know, and, uh, get those early premium prices. Yeah. It reminds me of the old adage, just a plan to, or like, what is it? Fail to plan, plan to fail. Um, <laughs> John, anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that there's two points that I think I'll just piggyback on. One is the, the nature of the falling prices that we're seeing. And I think Colorado has been actually a really good example of how that happens. Um, you know, in 2015, the average price per pound in the state was $2,000. So that's average uh, market rate across the entire state. Um, it hovered for a very long time between twelve and fourteen hundred, um, and then in the past quarter, it's fallen to around seven hundred. So, for the operators who um, you know built without any expectation that we were going to see um, you know a nearly sixty percent drop in, in the average market rate within seven and a half years, um, it becomes really difficult to. Um, to, to remain competitive or may require some pretty significant retrofitting of your property, of your operations, to be able to, to, to dial them in in order to bring your, your cost basis down. And so, you know, we say ad infinitum, plan for where the market is going, not where it currently is. And the utility of going into this with a hyper hyper focus on efficiency um, and cost minimization early on, not only means that you can enjoy the significantly greater margins when the prices are high when the market starts, but it means that even as you start to see this downward price pressure, which is inevitably going to come, um, that, that you're still able to remain competitive and that doesn't force you to have to then make sweeping changes to your operation to adapt. Um, so uh, that's one point. And then two, uh, I think Tony's made a really important point about the, uh, thinking about expansion as you build your, your, your base operations. Um, collectively, as an industry, I think we have continued to underestimate the scale of consumer demand for cannabis. And particularly as we start looking at the East Coast markets, I think we're going to be opening, um, you know, the proverbial, or we're going to be unleashing a genie on a scale that we have not previously seen. And so while uh, helpful to be conservative as you get started so that you're not producing more than you'll be able to sell out the gate, uh, thinking about uh, uh, almost a modular approach to your operation that allows you to expand as capacity is needed, 
um, and continue to enjoy these efficiencies without massive disruptions to your original operation. Um, I think it's going to be really important as these East Coast markets grow and grow into a, a scale of potential that I think is going to be very, very attractive and very lucrative for the companies that are able to survive in the long term. Well, speaking of efficiencies, um, Tony, what do you think are like the biggest line items in setting up a new facility? And if you have the resources to splurge on one item in your grow, what would yield the highest return on investment? Yeah, good question. The uh, I mean, the big line items, of course, are going to be you know the facility itself, building land. Uh, internally, you're going to have, of course, the environmental control equipment (HVAC), uh, lighting. Uh, controls and automation uh, and and security. Uh, so those are going to be kind of the big ticket items. You tell you where you in terms of efficiency, where you really want to think carefully about them is on the uh, the lighting. Of course, LED lighting much more efficient, and it's gotten you know a lot of traction in the marketplace. Uh, and then of course uh, energy efficiency on the HVAC side. And of course the, the beauty of LED lighting is that not only does it use a lot less electricity, but then it also gives off a lot less heat, which then needs to be removed by the environmental control equipment. So it, you get a double impact there. Uh, so in, in, with the environmental control equipment, you know you can throw some cheap stuff in there. Uh, and pay the price for a long time in terms of your energy bills. Uh, and you don't, you know, you, you don't want to do that. And that savings on that better e equipment, it's going to translate directly to the bottom line, uh, which is going to be, and those energy costs can be in your, you know, top three of your recurring monthly expenses. Along with that is the uh, controls and automation uh, in irrigation and environmental control. And that can substantially reduce labor expenses and improve productivity. Uh, but they, and they also give you insight into your business through data collection, which allows you then to make tweaks to minimize expenses uh, on lighting schedules, irrigation schedules, et cetera. So all those could combine to, uh, to come together to really make a big difference between an, an efficient and an inefficient facility. Amazing. I, you know, John and I were both out at, um, you know, MJ Biz last year, and it was incredible to see how much cultivation had taken up in like the booths and everything else. And just the, the, how sophisticated the technology has gotten there to make it be able to people to run more efficiently. Um, John, anything to add to that? The only thing maybe I might add is particularly for, for stakeholders who are in the Western and Pacific states is, you know, I'd encourage them to be thinking much more intentionally about the way they use water within the facility. Um, as, as we look at some, some of the drought forecasts um, for the, the, the Pacific states, for California in particular, um, over the next 10 to 20 years, um, you know, the, the, the idea that much of the West might be entering a, a mega drought on a scale that we tend to see on a millennial basis, um, is really concerning for what it's going to do to both access to and cost of water um, over the medium term. So this may not be necessarily a challenge that people are going to be wrestling with tomorrow, although there's certainly jurisdictions where uh, you're already seeing this uptick in, in uh, water use uh, costs. Uh, but as we look kind of over the medium term of the next decade, decade and a half, um, I think that the, the operators who have been hyper-focused on really minimizing their, their use of water, figuring out really efficient ways to reclaim um, the water, whether it's, you know, 
uh, water reclamation through the HVAC systems, making sure that there's no runoff out of the out of the plant. Um, those that is naturally going to lead to an additional competitive advantage. It may not be as impactful as as the competitive advantage that comes from uh, hyper management of your energy costs. Uh, but but let's not lose sight of the imperative that that water is going to increasingly play particularly on these uh, drought-stricken states who are only going to go into deeper crisis um, over the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, unquestionably true, John. Um, and of course, with indoor ag, you start by being on the order of, you know, what, 90% more efficient water-wise compared to, you know, an outdoor row crop. Still, how do we, how do, how do we husband that resource as carefully as possible? Yeah. Uh, yeah and so there's, Frankly, I don't know that we see people really doing a lot of reclamation in the facility, but we'd like to. And uh, I think we will see that more as time goes by. Right. Well, Tony, you mentioned that, uh, you know, one of the biggest costs is obviously the facility. What are some trade-offs about between building a new facility and refurbishing an existing one? Sure. Uh, but, you know, both can be a good path. Uh, refurbished buildings can you know, presumably reduce your time to market considerably, uh, assuming they're, you know, well suited to the application and don't require, you know, a, a massive amount of, of rehab. Uh, on the other hand, new buildings ensure you get exactly what you want with, you know, no limitations on you know, ceiling heights, inconvenient placement of columns and, uh, and the like. So they can both be, uh, you know, a, a good way to go. Uh, a new building may come with land purchase that allows for expansion. Uh, not necessarily, not necessarily in a, a differentiator, but you know potentially, um, refurbished buildings uh, may need a lot of evaluation by architectural and engineering teams to ensure they're suitable for the application. And you could end up spending some, you know, some wasted time and money if there end up being structural issues, uh, you know, for the building. So best to get a handle on that as quickly as possible. Uh, Cost-wise, they tend to be, you know, pretty similar, uh, and sometimes. The building in a building approach is, and that that being where you take a, an existing building and then put in uh, grow facilities inside it that are essentially a you know standalone uh, type modular facilities. And that can be cheaper, give you the benefits of of both by minimizing the refurbishment and and right sizing of the grow spaces for lights and HVAC with you know, with you know no construction delays. So uh, you know they they can both work. I'd bear particular attention uh, on older facilities uh, that you that you might see, and we've. We've worked with some really old buildings that could be, you know, readily used, but you really got to pay attention to the, you know, the basics of structural issues. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little like similar to a residential property too. <laughs> you could have a money pit. You may want to just keep the structure so you don't have to get all new permitting to get a new house. Uh, John, anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, one, one of the things about the existing facilities that just always makes me really nervous is because cannabis grows in such hyper humid environments, like it can get really humid in there. Um, things like mold, which can be deeply buried within the facility are real risk. And so the, the hazard of biological contaminants that might be in the existing space, particularly if it was also used for agricultural applications, um, is something that it's worth investing really heavily into to make sure that you know the, the exterior might be pretty, the interior, the visible interior might might look fine, but then you start finding that behind floorboards and uh, the less accessible parts of the building are the places where you're having these established colonies of micro, uh, micro, uh, microbiological contamin contaminants that end up kind of jeopardizing your crop. 
So, so um, you know, net net, it might end up being a wash on on the total cost of build versus buy. Uh, but the issue of uh, mold and other microbial contamination is the one thing that always makes me nervous about using an existing facility. So, we just urge uh, acute consideration of that. Get the experts in to go through the place with a fine tooth comb. Tony, have you had experience with that? Uh, no, I think that's well said. I think you, yeah, you do really have to, you know, pay attention to that. I mean, because yeah, I mean, and these mold issues can, those can be disastrous. Uh, you know, I, I don't have, we don't have, that's not our, our our part of the world, but uh, yeah, and we've seen they can really, really crop up and bite you. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking on just kind of getting up and running as quickly as possible, um, on average, do you have an estimate for how long it? can take for an effectively run facility to just recoup that investment? You know, that's a tough one. And there's so much vari variability there. I wouldn't want to, uh, wouldn't want to hazard an answer on that one. Uh, but I can make a couple of observations. One is that uh, the, the, the one thing you know about your pro forma is that it's going to be wrong. Uh, so you can be certain of that. Uh, you know, you, people tend to overestimate their yields and revenue because they're, they're optimists, they're entrepreneurs. That's where they're doing this, right? And so they tend to tend to overestimate a bit and then to underestimate uh, the budget of what the costs are going to be. But that's, I think that's endemic to any kind of entrepreneur doing that. Uh, you know, you, you're going to want to get an experienced design team in there early on to help ensure budgets are accurate. And, you know, you want to consider every variable. And, and so it's it's best to work with people who are experienced in these matters. Uh, you know, we have a lot of folks who we work with who are new into the industry. Uh, in a lot of enthusiasm, uh, want to go out and make a, a build a good business. Uh, but there's a lot of things they don't know. And, you know, tapping into the experiences of, you know, folks like us uh, or other such firms can really, you know, you know, make a difference. Uh, I tell you, the other part, have realistic expectations about dialing in the building. Uh, you, you, what you're doing is you're setting up a building and it's to, to grow a living plant. Uh, and that has, that's got a, a lot of moving parts in that. Uh, so you really ought to have some, some, you know, real expectations usually takes a year at least to, to get the thing running on all cylinders. And, you know, the, your long-term yield goal is not going to be hit with the, with the first or maybe even the 10th harvest. John, did you have a thought that did, did you want to throw in on that? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that, Tony. Um, it, it's, I, I, really don't know any large-scale commercial operators who have recouped the investment as fast as they thought they would. Um, but in, in some respects, they've also ended up being more profitable than they expected to be. So the demand ended up being so strong, the, the, the growth ended up being so strong that they ended up doing quite well. Um, but that, that, that initial idea of um, our, our facility took longer than we expected to build and recouping that investment took longer than we had anticipated. That seems to be pretty pretty consistent um, story in this space. Um, however, I would say the, the given how dynamic the, uh, the path toward building a, a super successful grow can be, um, if one goes into this one with realistic expectations, you know, um, having having a contrarian on the team is always really helpful to blunt a little entrepreneur's enthusiasm. Um, and then two, being relentless, relentlessly focused on operational efficiency. 
Um, because it's these, you know, the 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 in the rush to get operational, it can be really easy to say, oh, we're just going to start spending money left and right to get this thing going as quickly as possible, or we're not going to be be as focused on where our team is spending the time or um, what we are paying for or getting the best deals and discounts on on what we're putting into the facility, etc. Um, that a lack of focus on on efficiency at uh, in the interest of trying to get up and running as quickly as possible can end up being a double-edged sword because some of the practices and decisions made in that rush can end up having far more consequential long-term costs. Like Tony said at the beginning, um, if you scrimp and save uh, on the uh, on the uh, kind of energy-related uh, uh, equipment that you're, you're, you're purchasing and then it triples the long-term cost of your utility bills, then that doesn't end up being a savings and it makes it much more difficult over time without a major retrofit uh, to, to get those costs down. So, you know, having that a very clear lens uh, that's uniformly understood across the team that uh, even as there is a, a, a need for speed, that it should not be at the expense of operational efficiency. Baking in that culture of, of efficiency early on can be one of the things that helps you recoup that investment uh, more quickly. Yeah, I, I I agree with that completely, John. And then just thinking about this too, I mean, there's just this temptation to load up with plants because they want to get growing, right? As soon as the contractor says they're done, you know, give yourselves and your contractors time to make sure everything is really ready for plants instead of just jumping the gun and, you know, risk wasting a bunch of time and money on subpar uh, harvests. So, you know, g give it the time it needs. Right. Well, Tony, what are some of the like biggest innovations driving efficiency in controlled environment um, cannabis cultivation? Sure. Um, you're starting off with a bit of a definition. I mean, efficiency, you know, means a couple things. One is, you know, just uh, aggregate energy use. And second, you know, what you produce in exchange for it. So just driving down energy use isn't the whole story. The whole story is what are you getting in exchange? You know, it's the efficiency ratio. So facilities that are well designed to maximize productivity, for instance, are improving efficiency, even if they use the same energy as the neighbor who isn't maximizing productivity. So this could be as simple as a floor plan that minimizes labor waste or as complex as completely automated irrigation or harvesting processes. Yeah. Uh, you know, purpose-built and designed environmental control systems. Uh, you know, the advancements in LED technology uh, that minimize lighting and HVAC energy uh, or maximize, you know, the PPFD with lower wattage. Uh, Alternative energy sources. Uh, we have run into a few projects uh, that use what's called CHP or combined heat and power, uh, where you produce your own power with your own power plant and you can reduce the cost of power, but also reduce the energy use uh, by using waste and byproduct heat for climate control. Uh, so you get waste heat off these systems. Uh, these things are typically uh, cost prohibitive. What we're seeing people use them more often when there's the when, when you don't have enough electricity available at a given site and so making your own you using for example typically it's a natural gas powered uh diesel uh, type engines uh, you know can really make a difference there uh, so finally, I guess the more sophisticated controls and automation, including use of robots and sensors for plant care and labor intensive activities. It's really interesting what we're seeing on the technology side where they're bringing in, uh, you know, these sensing systems that 
that are getting very advanced. I've seen, you know, multispectral vision systems that are constantly inspecting uh, the plants and looking for, you know, problems early on. And that can help you be more efficient in that you won't lose part of your crop, uh, you know, by making sure that you address those issues early on. So it's really how much am I getting out versus how much am I putting in? Well, it's definitely not um, overstating it that this is a very complicated process, um, a lot of moving pieces. Um, John, anything to add in there? Yeah, maybe just a couple of things. I think this idea of particularly the, the issues of access to energy is really interesting as we look at the East Coast markets. Generally, power has not been, access to power has not been a big issue, maybe outside of California, but most of the Western states, um, they've, got, they've got good sources of hydro, um, the grids are relatively under capacity, Colorado is a pretty energy rich state, it's not been a major issue there. As you start looking at the aging grids on the East Coast markets, I think this idea of energy reliability uh, and energy costs is perhaps going to be a higher priority issue than it's been in the past. And so, um, you know, for, for operators who are building on the East Coast, particularly the, the Northeastern markets, uh, places like Massachusetts, much, much more imperative to have um, uh, clear redundancies for your energy sources and uh, think through what potential approaches you might have to reduce your energy requirements. And then two, just a broader kind of idea around the pace of innovation in this space. It wasn't that long ago that we were talking about LEDs being both too expensive and too unreliable to make sense compared to HIDs or um, uh, other types of lighting that, that put, might, might, might have been using. And just over the past five years, we've seen phenomenal investment in improving the quality of LEDs and, and um, dramatic improvements in their reliability. So, you know, in some respects, it feels like as an industry, we are still in the very early days of some of these innovations in uh, uh, CEA that are going to be profoundly beneficial to the, the, the long-term of cannabis. Uh, this idea of the cannabis, um, uh, a, a controlled environment cannabis grow turning to a full network operation center that has robots and, you know, uh, remote sensors and, and every manner of, of uh, monitoring uh, coming across uh, heat, water, light, humidity, um, plant performance, plant health, soil moisture. Um, you know, it, it's going to be interesting that I think we, we, we are going to see an element of this industry that is going to tra transition away from being conventional agriculture to becoming almost like an ag tech role, uh, which I think is going to create both opportunities for the hardware and software that drive these systems, but also for uh, trained professionals who have the ability to manage these systems. Um, we're still in the early days of that or maybe starting, chap you know, the second chapter of the early stage of this story. Um, but I think it's going to be make, make for a very, very interesting decade ahead as we see um, these technologies begin to proliferate within our cultivation spaces. Yeah, you know, John, I, I agree with that. And I think it's a particularly interesting point because when I first came in the industry here you know, four years ago, um, what I heard talk was about was, well, we're going to learn how to grow cannabis indoors uh, and then we're going to take that that those methodologies and technologies are going to take that and grow and to learn how to, to grow food indoors more efficiently. But I really see it a bit going the other way. And what's driving it is the fact that, look, when you've got cannabis at 1500 or 2000 bucks a pound, okay, okay, now we're going to use those same technologies to grow strawberries for two bucks a pound. 
I mean, I, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work, right? Right. And so, right? And so what you're seeing is the folks who are in regular food production, they are just dead set. They've got to drive out costs because they don't have that kind of pricing available to them. So they've got to drive it out. So you see a lot of innovation around like automation in particular uh, in non-cannabis food production, uh, which is some really cool stuff. I've seen some really interesting things coming out of that space. So I really think you're going to get almost more innovation coming out of the just the food side, just because they don't have the cost structure or the uh, pricing uh, structure to deal with. Well, Tony, that leads me to my next question. What any thoughts or predictions or expectations for how cultivation will grow over the next couple of years? Well, I think, you know, the, you know, the industry, uh, uh, the industry data from firms like yours and others is, you know, keeping growing 21 to 28% compound annual growth uh, globally over the next several years uh, on the, the legal side, who knows? I, I don't have a crystal ball, but what we do know is that more than half of Americans believe cannabis should be legalized. Uh, and perhaps the politicians will catch up to that fact and make it federally legal, uh, which I, I fully expect will happen at some point, but, <laughs> have no idea, you know, uh, when. Uh, of course, then what happens? Okay, now the cannabis industry starts to look a lot like, you know, the beer industry, uh, with perhaps some consolidation, a few large companies producing low-cost cannabis, uh, much like you know, the large beer companies. Uh, and then maybe it'll be bifurcated. You'll have some, you know, uh, craft companies producing higher cost, higher quality uh, cannabis, uh, like your, like the craft brewers. So you, you would see that. I think the interesting question then is what becomes of uh, these individual protected state markets? Uh, okay, now you've got, uh, if you had full interstate commerce, you'd probably only be growing product in a few places that are most have the you know the most favorable uh, environmental conditions, instead of having you know eight hundred grows in every state, right? The world will look completely different, and you know the industry will completely rationalize if it went to full on legalization uh, in interstate commerce. Never mind international commerce. You, 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 Colombia and places like that have some very favorable growing conditions. Why couldn't, you know, we, we wouldn't even need to grow it here at all. Not that I'm advocating that, but if that did happen, that would change the, you know, the whole industry dramatically. Yeah, absolutely. John, what is your, uh, what is your crystal ball say? Totally agree with everything Tony has just said. <laughs> and maybe this is a subset of that. We're already starting to see this bifurcation between cannabis being grown for extraction versus cannabis being grown for flower. Uh, and given the cost differential, since you know, cannabis being grown for extraction really doesn't need the same level of uh, babying that um, uh, cannabis that's being grown for smoking needs, because you're not necessarily needing to maintain uh, the same level of, of jar feel, of appearance, of curation that uh, a consumer is going to be looking for for, for the cannabis that they're buying to smoke. Um, it, the, the cost competitiveness of cannabis being grown for extraction indoors versus being grown in either mixed light or outdoors is starting to shift. So we're already starting to see um, some growers who are operating both outdoors and indoor facilities, um, uh, indoors for the smokable flower, outdoors for the extraction facility. Um, as you start to see the wholesale price per pound for cannabis for extraction fall more quickly than it does for flour. I think that's going to put additional pressure on folks who are thinking about producing for two different types of applications. So, you know, not only are we going to be seeing it in the micro scale of, you know, different environments for smokable flour versus extraction destined, uh, destined flour, 
Uh, but to Tony's point, you add that on top of this idea of an, a fully national legal environment allowing cannabis to grow in the places that it thrives the most. Well, then, you know, it's going to be pretty hard to argue that it makes sense to be growing cannabis indoors in Minnesota in the middle of winter um, when you can be, you know, harvesting crop at, at a significantly lower cost and, and much less resource use uh, in places like uh, California or other uh, other environments where cannabis tends to thrive naturally because of the climatic conditions. Amazing. Well, we are almost out of time, but Tony, before we wrap up, we give our guests the opportunity to give a shout out to someone in the industry that you think is doing amazing things. So the floor is yours. Sure. Uh, and I guess I'll, I'll keep it in, in our house and just shout out to our, our co-founders, uh, Stephen and Brandy Keene. And Brandy uh, still you know, works for us and is a, you know, just a, a, a great source of knowledge and experience in the industry. She's been at it you know, for now 16 years and you know, is just a great resource for our, our customers uh, to go to and has been a, uh, you know, a, a great role model for a lot of uh, women in the space. So, uh, you know, just glad that she's still working hard with us uh, as well as doing a you know, great job raising her family. So uh, very pleased that, uh, you know, she's still part of our team. Absolutely. That's amazing. She's actually going to be joining us on a webinar coming up here soon. So um, our listeners will have to check that out coming up. Well, thank you both so much for your time. And thank you to our listeners for joining us at Canna Week. Please be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And if you really like us, leave us a five-star review. And also please check out Tony's book, Clean Tech Sell, the essential guide to selling resource-efficient products in the B2B market, which is selling on Amazon. I am your host, Heather Wickline, and we will see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.